Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. I am a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and I also review films for The Playlist, Cut Print Film, and of course, Cinemaholics.com. I'm Will Ashton. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, where's John? He usually says this part of the, of the program. Unfortunately, he is not available to join us this week, but you have me, your regular co-host, Will Ashton, and joining me as, uh, I guess now as per usual, uh, our good friend, he is a critic and writer for several publications. Let's see, I got The Playlist, The Nashville Scene, and several more. It's Corey Woodruff. Am I forgetting anything else? I don't think so, unless there's like some like us version of myself that's sure. running around <laughs> writing for like not good publications right. other than the fines when you listed. That would be kind of a bummer. Mm. Like he's just like writing stuff on like the walls of like bathrooms. He's just like writing bad reviews. Like that's the person who said Toy Story is bad or for Toy Story, like the Dimitri Martin bit where he's like Toy Story 2 oh, is bad. Yeah, Toy Story 2 is just okay. Yeah, it's like <laughs> I actually like Toy Story 2. So I'm I'm pro Toy Story 2 and I'm Corey Woodruff. And I'm happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely of the opinion that Toy Story 2 is the strongest of the Toy Stories. I think John feels the same way as well, but I don't want to speak for him. So we have an episode that's devoted all about the Pixar ranking. You can check for with that to figure out where exactly where he is on that. But anyway, I was going to say of all people. Like, but, he would know of all people. Yeah. Like, preeminent Pixar expert I look to. Yeah. I, was, I forgot to put this on our um, off topics, but if you have an Entertainment Weekly subscription, he was interviewed in the latest, I think it was called the behind the scenes issue. So fans of the podcast, uh, pick up your copy of Entertainment Weekly because John Negroni is in it. And I am looking forward to picking up that copy as well, reading what he had to say. I don't know if he, in- he mentioned Cinemaholics in it or not. I was kind of curious, but I have a feeling not. But we'll see. But anyway, uh, if you like our show, you can find more episodes of Cinemaholics on adamtickets.com, as well as our full archive on cinemaholics.com. You can also write into the show anytime by emailing us at cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. And you can support us directly by becoming one of our monthly patrons at patreon.com slash cinemaholics. Now we got that out of the way. Um, oh, and just before I forget, Corey, I was going to say, so... You've been on the show, I think, now three times or four times? Yeah, this is my third. Third time. Okay. Because the kid would be king. Mm-hmm. And then Greta, right? Greta, yeah. Yeah. So I was going to say, we're getting to the point where this is almost going to be Coriaholics, right? Yeah, it is, really, which is like not a good thing. Like, <laughs> what? I think it's, it's like, a great thing. Oh, it could be. But then if I go to Coriaholics, I'll have to get into all my terrible movie opinions. And oh. then we'll get into like, I don't know. I'll do like a two-hour Space Jam episode and it'll just get crazy. Well, Nobody wants that. You're talking to the guy who's, I believe now, okay, I'll, I'll promote this early. Uh, I am three episodes into my podcast, The Ogre to It's Ogre Season 3. And I Wonderful let, podcast. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. You've been on the show, I should mention, uh, I believe last June or July? Yeah, it was uh, late last summer we did Cat in the Hat. Mm-hmm. And then I am very excited to get a Garfield viewing in because it's just, what in the world? Like, <laughs> that's a movie to yeah, I'm I'm sure we'll get you on at one point because I mean, why not? I mean, I'm short. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to let everyone know that uh, our third episode is now available and it's uh, live. I guess I should say in more ways than one because it's our first live episode of the podcast. We recorded it in front of a live studio audience, uh, filled with adoring fans. Hey, it was and, filled with all those Garfield phones that washed up on the beach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just a bunch of those poured in. Yeah, I was, I was a little bummed, real talk, that uh, that happened after we recorded our episode. 
uh, this month, but we'll probably talk about that in April because, I mean... Yeah, that's all you really can talk about because you're going to run out of things to say about Garfield the movie. Like, it's just going to get to, like, June and you're going to be like, um, let's go through the rest of Bill Murray's accidental filmography. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. Um, but um, I also wanted to let everyone know we have an extra milestone episode that's now available. Uh, it's a one that was previously a Patreon exclusive, but now it's available for everybody now that the month of March is coming to a close. It is our Some Like It Hot episode, which I haven't gotten a chance to listen back to yet, but I have a feeling it's a pretty darn good one just because it felt good. I don't know if um, – have you seen Some Like It Hot, Corey? I have not. I've got it in one of my big movies to watch stack in my room, so yeah. I'm looking forward to getting into that one. It was on my list of similar – it was – Similar to you, it was on my list of films that I had been meaning to see for forever, and finally I got a chance to see it, and it was really, really good. Uh, it, it holds get up. That and gentlemen's prefer blondes confused because they're both kind of like have the same like you know template, I guess. Well, Marilyn they're Monroe, screwball comedies. Yeah, they're both Billy Wilder, and they both star um, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, so that makes sense. I think it's a pretty fair uh, mix up. I like that one. It's a good movie. I still haven't seen that one, actually. I'm pretty... I, I don't think John's going to like this, but I'm actually pretty behind on my Billy Wilder uh, filmography. Yeah, I'm... That's, like... There's some... Like, that's the big one that I'm just kind of like... I got nothing. I have seen one, but... Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Cinema. Yeah. <laughs> like, the experts who have not seen any Billy Wilder movies are going to yeah. get up Dumbo. Yeah. Um, and then uh, one last podcast to promote. Uh, John was on the latest episode of Bacons and Eggs. Um, let me pre-pronounce that, Bacon and Eggs. Um, he talked about Jordan Peele's Us. They had a pretty spoiler-filled conversation, uh, which was the topic of our last episode of yeah. Cinemaholics. Uh, and not to talk about. Yeah. First, um, before we get into some of our listener comments, Corey, I wanted you to have the platform for a bit. Tell us a little bit about how you felt about Us. I loved it. I mean, it's just a movie I think that like a lot of what of Get Out was. It just rewards itself more and more and more as you go along. And that's something I really began to pick up about genre films and horror specifically is that it opens itself to new ways for you the further you get removed. Because I feel like when you watch a horror film, there's almost that anticipation of like, am I going to get scared? Am I going to kind of follow this trail? Where is it going to go? How, how bleak is this going to get? And I think that you know, like us, it's like, as I keep looking back on it, I keep beginning to be impressed that he tells such a small story in such a grand way. Because it's really just a home invasion film with some weird stuff thrown in, but it's just like the depth to it and just the mystery and the, the brilliant of the craft and the performances. I mean, it all just like boils down to a very exact sense of like, of what Jordan Peele is doing. And I think it's finally time we can just kind of sit down and be like, this guy is one of the new great directors. And I know that you don't want to do that for a person after one movie because, you know, sometimes they can be one hit wonders, but I'm enamored with it. It's just going to get better as you think about it. And it's just like, you know, that's my favorite movie of the year so far. And I think it's just another testament to what a good moment we are for genre right now. I feel like that genre horror is in a really good place. And there's just a lot of exciting artists working in that field. There's a lot of studio willingness to fund stuff like that because it can be so low budget and has such high return. Like it's just a good time for exploratory horror and impactful horror that has great messages and deals with craft in different ways. Like I was looking at Mandy last year, which was my favorite movie of 2018. Like what Panos Cosmatos did instead of his big canvas, like, 
it's a good time for that genre. And I just feel like that us, it's just another example of if you're a horror fan, that you're in a good place. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And uh, all I have to add is that um, I think Chris Evangelista, who was on our glass episode, he wrote on Twitter that this kind of feels like what the shining might be for our generation. And I don't know if that's going to be true or not because it's still very early on. Yeah. But that feels pretty apt. That feels something like a film like that. Um, if you haven't seen the documentary room 20, uh, two thirty seven, uh, great documentary. If you just want to hear just like, off the wall theories about a film that uh, some of them are just completely bonkers, and some of them are like, you know, maybe there's something to this. I feel like, uh, in a maybe a more practical and realistic sense, I could see us just curating all these fantastical theories and very realistic and relevant theories as well. And it's going to be uh, a pretty amazing time, I think, for that film. I hope it has great long legs. Um, but let me just talk real briefly about some of the comments we've gotten from our last episode. And let's see. Uh, Sal York said, great episode. You guys really nailed what I love so much about the movie. The scares are great, but the themes run much deeper. I can't stop thinking about the experience of seeing this film and seeing it again. So thank you, Sal York. I appreciate that. And I'm sure, uh, John appreciates that as well. Um, let's see what else I would say. Oh, sorry. Uh, Blather, Blather B said, I would go far enough to say this film is a masterpiece and will be recognized as such within time. Every line of dialogue is intentional. Every visual lends meaning to the overall picture. I can't get this movie off my mind, and that's what the best movies do. No. Totally agree with you there. And uh, let's see. James also said, I didn't like this one as much as Get Out, but the conversation around the movie has been fascinating to read and listen to. It's so obvious Jordan Peele knows how to make horror films people actually want to see and talk about. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I can't disagree, although I will say, I mean, to uh, your point, Corey, I think this is a fantastic point for horror films, but I think horror films have always been pretty great. But I think this boon that we have right now has been extra great. And I think what it's really doing is giving it a little more respect and a little more credibility that um, I think it's always been there in some ways, but in a general uh, populist sense, it's been kind of overlooked. So I think for me as a horror fan, that has been that part of it has been really really exciting and really really uh hopeful because it wasn't like 20 years ago that that genre was almost dead in the water i mean you had some exciting people working outside of the mainstream but it was like we were on our like 18th friday the 13th movie and nightmare you on saying a- that ghost ship is not a great film <laughs> i'm saying that ghost ship is going to sail back into our conversation one day that and um uh I don't know. We needed like ghost ships, and that needed to have like a phone, like like that's like that was like a planes spinoff. It was like yeah. like Mater goes on a cruise, and it's like ah, it's a ghost ship. I was thinking like ghost tugboat. <laughs> yeah, just that's, think that's, like a like a smaller venture, like uh, the Blumhouse yeah. company can kind of do that, something with that. I think <laughs> for ten ghost, million ghost dinghy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man, I cannot wait for that series. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I feel kind of bad. We have to go into a bit of a downer point, but uh, I don't know if there's any good transition for what is ultimately fairly heartbreaking news. Well, we can transition from like great film of the present to great film that marked the past. Yeah, but we were talking about Ghost Ship. That's true. <laughs> I want to bring up all of these great films. Yeah. Like yeah. Fear.com or something. Fear.net. Fear.net. <laughs> oh, man. Oh gosh. Anyway, um, I just want to recognize that uh, 
Agnes Varda, mm-hmm. uh, a legendary French filmmaker, uh, easily, I think, one of the most well-accredited and respected filmmakers of her time, and I'd say now as well, has uh, ultimately passed away at the age of 90 this week, which um, I'll, I'll trick this one over to you, Corey. What's your familiarity with Agnes Varda? I know she has uh, a great and long and lasting influence on a lot of film fans, but I was curious to hear uh, where she stands with you personally. It's one of those filmmakers where it's like, I know her. I've not seen any of her films. And oh, really? it's like, yeah, it's very embarrassing for me. I'm pretty bad with the French new wave. Like okay. I've seen a little bit, but it's like, you don't need, if you know movies, you don't need to have seen any of her films to know what she meant. Mm-hmm. Because like, I feel that people have kept her alive and have kept her work at the forefront of our conversation. Um, it's just, you know, I think it's beginning to get to a point now where it's becoming almost a requirement that if you really want to get into this stuff, like you really need to know who Varda was. And I feel like it's not always been that case, um, you know, because it's just we're in a different world right now, thankfully, where we can have more discussion about a wider breadth of what it means to be a film fan. Because I feel like, you know, sometimes we get so caught up in the meat and potatoes of, I know Spielberg, I know Scorsese, I know this and that, but it feels like even from that sense, Varda is beginning to be more, I don't know, prevalent. And maybe it's just, I'm becoming more aware for as time goes on. And I, I, she's, she obviously was a brilliant filmmaker. I missed Faces Places last year or 2017. And that one really is one I want to revisit pretty quickly. But I mean, obviously, like, you look back at the French New Wave and you have your Truffauts, you have your Demis, and you have folks that were really working hard at that time to pioneer that style. And she was right there. And really, I think that it's it's always kind of bittersweet when this happens, but I think she's going to be an artist that will even, even like, you know, obviously she has her pretty distinct fan base, but like, I feel like her work will become even more prevalent as time goes on because it just has stayed so evergreen. And the themes she was dealing with were the themes that like, you know, she's that we have to deal with now. And I think when film could take that universal slant of always being at the forefront of the conversation, then like, you know, I'm very excited to dig into this because I feel like I'm only, this is embarrassing. When Prince died, I was not that familiar with Prince. I mean, I knew Purple Rain and, you know, the big songs, but it wasn't until after his death that I really began to kind of dig into who he was and the catalog and begin to take this really great appreciation for who he was as an artist. And I just hate that sometimes it takes death for us to really dig into who some of these people were. And that's how it's going to be for me and Agnes Varda. It's like, you knew who she was, you really appreciated her from an outside, but now it's like you have that impetus to kind of go back in. So, you know, this is someone who I'm just now, I think, going to begin to really kind of dig back into. So I'm, I hate that this is the occasion for it, but I want to be able to appreciate her properly. So I'm going to take my own steps now to kind of rectify that little gap in my film knowledge. Yeah. I mean, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I apologize yeah. for that. But um, yeah, I was going to say one of the great things about uh, Agnes Varda's filmography, among several great things, is that thankfully a lot of it is available on streaming. Faces Places, as you mentioned, was her last film. And that's available on Netflix right now. And I actually did get to see that in theaters, thankfully. And uh, it's a really, really special, touching film. Um, I don't think I actually got a chance to talk about it much on the podcast. I don't even know if I ever got to bring it up. Because I saw it early on in our days uh, of Cinemaholics podcasting. But I think one thing it really uh, impressed upon people with her films is that they were very personal. They very much were films that she 
grew a connection through audiences by being very true to herself, very open and loving and sincere as a filmmaker, but also transcending new grounds. And I think that people, the reason I think this death is so impactful for several reasons is that Agnes Varda, you kind of, even if you didn't know her, if you never met her uh, in person, you kind of felt like you knew her. You, you got that sense like you could go a connection with her, that you uh, had that meaningful uh, interaction with her in some way or another. And I think that's just a, a quality of a great filmmaker, a way that you're able to have that connection, even though you can be miles apart and, you know, several de- generations away. Uh, if you have that connection with an artist, uh, that's truly powerful. And I mean, yeah, I would say I think her most famous film would probably be Cleo from five to seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, from 1962. That was one of her earlier films. It's not her first film. I don't know exactly, but there's Vagabound, there's The Gleaners and I, there's so many more. Um, please, if you get a chance, I know a lot of our listeners do the uh, 52 films by women uh, process, or I don't I, I like, Some people call it a challenge, but I don't feel like it's a, really a challenge to watch movies, but no. um, yeah. <laughs> I don't like I don't like that term. So I try to figure out another way what to call it. Fifty two films by women opportunity is that a better yeah, one? Yeah, the privilege. Privilege, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think if you're looking for a great filmmaker uh, who has really you know just proven herself time and time again throughout the medium of cinema, throughout multiple generations and many films, uh, I would definitely recommend looking into her work. And I hope, like Corey, you get a chance to uh, explore film even though tragically she was no longer with us so i just wanted to give us a little moment to talk about that um i just feel like she's such a filmmaker of monumental impact on the medium especially in the early days of it and at a point when it was changing into such a pivotal and inspirational point that uh, it would be remiss of us not to talk about her so yeah and what dexterity to be able to like master fiction and documentary of course yeah I think, you know, I feel like Werner Herzog's the easy comparison to make, but I feel like, you know, she, like Herzog, was able to look at humanity through so many different ways. And it seems like she ended her career on a really positive note and mm-hmm. the friendship and positivity there. And just because people said that movie was a riot. And that's just so fascinating to me that she really had that ability to just be so ambidextrous with the styles she would try to tell stories with. So, I mean, that's that's not easy. Yeah, I mean, Faces Place is already a fairly bittersweet and self-reflective film to begin with. So I imagine it's even more so now. Um, so yeah, I definitely would recommend that. Like I said, it's on Netflix. Um, check that out if you get a chance. Also, a lot of her films are on uh, Canopy. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think Cleo from 5 to 7 is in there as well. And it's also in the Criterion. So it's available. I'm sure a lot of her films are available at your local library or several other places. It's probably not too hard hopefully to find a lot of her work so yeah with that um that's a little bit of a downer a little bit of a sad note to say so let's uh let's bring things up a little bit Uh, disney rumination on the evils of mankind yeah (laughs) that's uh one way to put it i suppose we're gonna talk about tim burton's dumbo uh Corey, where would we begin with tim burton's dumbo I think you have to begin to like understand that they took a monumentally disguised film in the 1942 Dumbo or 43, whenever that did come out. 41, yeah. 41, okay. So it's right in that early 40 range. That is sincerely one of the just most dour Disney films I've ever watched. With, with, and it's like 
only Disney would take a movie that starred this little adorable baby elephant that can fly and then like just tuck in so many just erstwhile themes of mankind's greed and abilities to, you know, take its, you know, tyrannical ideas and take them to innocence and just that's a very complicated movie. It's a very good movie. It's a very problematic movie with yeah. some of its, you know, che- uh, very lazy stereotyping towards the end. But right. it, it's just such a weird movie to like look at this and then look at what Tim Burton did, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like what he did with Alice in Wonderland, where it's like a lot of those themes and ideas that Lewis Carroll dealt with, who was obviously a very challenging person to reevaluate. And Alice in Wonderland, even the Disney film, is very much you have to look back at it and be like. I look at this differently now that I'm a little old, you know, we're a little bit further down the road. And then to watch Tim Burton's movie, and it's like, I don't see the disconnect at all. But I think that's because Disney doesn't tell stories like that anymore, I guess. Yeah, well, uh, before we get too ahead of ourselves, I just want to give uh, a brief synopsis of the film. Uh, both the... <laughs> As I get down to the, the, the thesis paper, yeah. <laughs> I get the plot and cast laid out. Yeah, um, so if you just happen to not know, uh, Dumbo, the original 1941 animated film, uh, one of the earlier works from Disney Animation's uh, studio branch, it tells a story of a baby elephant, as we mentioned, who has uh, extremely big ears. And because of that, this poor little baby elephant gets mocked by its elephant peers and also humans and almost everybody except this little mouse who uh, adopts uh, Dumbo under his wing. And uh, they they form a sweet little friendship. But the main thrust of the story is mostly uh, Dumbo reconnecting with his mom, who in a mm-hmm. moment of... Uh, courage and also protecting her young finds herself in captivity uh and ultimately away from her son and throughout this journey dumbo finds his self-worth by being able to fly with his ears and it's just one of those stories where you just kind of you know like kind of learn learning to love yourself and accepting yourself and stuff like that it's a fairly simple message but as you alluded to Corey, it, it it's such a it has such a sweet innocence i think too in addition to being also kind of sad and melancholy that it's like a nice like sad sweetness to that film that uh it's only an hour long and i think it would be near perfect if it weren't for that terrible uh stereotyping as you mentioned yeah. at, at the book end of it which really just puts a sour note on what is otherwise such an innocent and pure film um it's it's a shame really and i think that was the main uh point of interest for a lot of people when it came to remaking this film in 2019 was hopefully having a chance to uh get rid of that awful profiling and uh hopefully you know keep some of the pure sweetness of the original story intact now if that's successful or not we we mentioned a little bit already but we'll talk about that more briefly i just want to say that the live action tim burton version stars colin farrell Michael Keaton, Danny DeVito, Eva Green, and Alan Arkin in a turn that I was not expecting. I did not know before I saw this film that Alan Arkin was going to be in it. So that was quite a surprise for me. How about you? It was like he just showed up and I was kind of like, oh, Alan Arkin. And what I like to imagine is like he was shooting a movie next door. And then Tim Burton like ran into him at like the commissary and was like, oh, hello, Alan Arkin. He's like, hello, Tim Burton. See. yeah, I was. I thought he like just owed him a favor for something. Because <laughs> yeah. Alan Arkin, like, he is an Oscar winner at this point. I feel like every time he's been asked to do a movie after Little Miss Sunshine, it's kind of like, why? Like, why do <laughs> I have to do this? 
It's like, <laughs> you owe me. Like, oh, fine, fine. Just tell me when to show up. <laughs> <laughs> every time you look at him at like an award show, he's kind of like, he always has a look of, why did I do this? Yeah. Like, I don't want to be here. Why are these people talking about me? I want to go home. And it's just like, it's past my bedtime. Let me just go home. <laughs> yeah, just like, look, I'm in, I am older than you think I am. I just want to go to bed. I appreciate it. I didn't but, ask for any of this. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I'm still riding on that, that vacation money from uh, that movie I did with Zach Braff a few years ago. Like, I really just want to, like, just chill out. I don't even know what movie that is. It's like that one where he and Michael Caine and Morgan Freeman. Like, oh, going in style. Yeah. And oh, Zach Braff oh. directed it. And it's like, they just like rob banks. I don't yeah, know. No, I remember now. I thought you said Zach Efron, not Zach Braff. <laughs> That's right. That, uh, Zach Efron's weird auteur phase. Yeah. Of his <laughs> oh, man. That was a weird movie. I should also mention that Nicole Parker and uh, Finley Hobbins. I think those are the names of the kids. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a kind of curious name, Finland Hobby or Fin Finley Hobbins. Finley Hobbins. That's like Tim Burton just cast a kill in his name alone. Like, yeah. that works. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, they're both newcomers. I think this is their first, each of them. It was their first film. Right uh, yeah. So I don't know what number live action remake this is. It has to be like what four or five now. It's been a bunch. I mean, we've had Cinderella. We've had. Um, Beauty and the Beast, Jungle Book, and maybe another one I'm forgetting. But did Cinderella get us kicked off? Or no, what? I think Alice in Wonderland was actually the first yeah, one, which was also directed by Tim Burton. So I guess it's important to note is that this is the first uh, Disney film, I think. Well, no, Frank and Weenie was in 2012. Yeah. But this is the first live-action Disney film that Tim Burton has made since Alice yeah. in Wonderland, which... Uh, as we were talking about off the air, is a film uh, of little acclaim, at least critically, but it's a film that has uh, proven itself to be the most financially successful of Tim Burton's films by a long shot, and also uh, has formed, I guess, a bit of a small cult following as well. So, Corey, yeah, yeah, it's terrible. I, I, yeah, I, I'll, I'll talk about my opinions on Tim Burton in a little bit. But first, Corey, I wanted to hear first, how do you generally feel about these live action remakes? Just the nature of them kind of just going into their uh, vault and remaking all these films. And then tell us how you feel about this new version of Dumbo. You know, I feel like with these revamps, I guess, I feel like I'm almost kind of here nor there on them. I categorically don't like that Disney seems to be completely spurning original content these days. Um, it just feels like as a company, they're trying so hard to pad these investments into other ideas that they're just kind of like, we need to make sure that we're still pulling in these one, $2 billion movies, one or two every year. And it's like, you know, when you make a movie like, Dumbo or you ran the Lion King back this summer. They've got Mulan coming. Uh, they got Aladdin coming in. Uh, I believe it's yeah, May right before Memorial Day. It's just, I mean, they're just safe investments. And I just like Disney used to like, you look at some of those old animated movies, they used to have teeth. And I feel like Pixar has tons of teeth or they maybe have begun to kind of wane out just a little bit, but I, I don't know. It just feels so safe. And it's like, the Jungle Book that John Favreau did—it's a perfectly enjoyable movie, but it's just like don't really need it. Yeah. It's, it's enjoyable. You watch 
it. Some people really enjoy it. It's more nostalgia than anything else. It's a new way of telling a story we've heard a million times. And I just feel like that with these movies, it's just, it's inevitable. And I feel like it's better invested in stuff like Dumbo because you're kind of going back to like the 40s. And I can understand bringing that back, but uh-huh. I, I vehemently don't think we needed the Slime King movie. I don't think we need Aladdin. I just don't think these movies need to exist, but if they're going to exist, they need to not be Beauty and the Beast because I think Beauty and the Beast is the worst thing Disney has done. And I feel like some of the, in like a very long time, and I feel like that and Alice in Wonderland are two of my least favorite Disney movies mm-hmm. of the last decade. And it's because they're just soulless. They just, they're made exclusively to get people in, to bring up those cues that recall greater pieces of art from the past. And I feel like, you know, for Disney, who I think in general is a good steward of its IP, it's a good steward of content. Like I think people are hard on Disney because it's, becoming a monopoly and we'll obviously talk about some of the ironies of that with this film but i think that by and large they do a good job of letting artists have a decent amount of freedom they've had some skirmishes here with star wars and marvel but in general like you know Fort ragnarok is a disney movie and it's like they're still making movies like that so i try not to be too hard on the studio when they do things that are right but these movies in particular i'm just here nor there they're there they're gonna happen they're gonna make a ton of money people are gonna really enjoy them that aren't me so and, you know, and again, to transition to what I think of this film, I think it's rather agreeable. This, to me, is exactly what I felt mainly when I watched that Jungle Book that John Favreau did. I was like, I, I really enjoyed that. That was a good two hours spent. It's not going to shake my world. I don't really know if I'm going to watch it again unless it's on TV and I put it on the background. Like, it's just, it's, it's inessential. But for what it does, it does some things well. And I love Tim Burton. So it's good to see him work on a canvas that he obviously puts passion into. I think this film is one he's had visualized in his head for quite some time. There's a very striking sense of visuals with this film, and I think there's a lot of prep and love that went into it, and I think that's the difference, because I think this movie could have been a disaster or just very soulless with its script the way it was, but I think Tim Burton went overdrive to make this as good as he could have make it as personal as he was because i think this film is very influential going back and watching that 41 film you can see tim burton picking some stuff especially that pink elephant song and some things of cruelty they're very tim burton things and i can see him as a kid watching that and being very enamored with it but he's obviously someone who was who grew up on disney films i mean how he he was he hovered around that world when he was first getting started made frank and winnie the short for disney back in the 80s like he's very much of that disney mold and i think it's fun to watch him Make a good Disney movie. I mean, I, I love Frankenstein. I think that's one of his best films. But for live action, like, you know, we can talk more about kind of the intricacies of this one. But I think in general, I, I, I really did enjoy it. But I don't think it's perfect. I think it has some pretty obvious problems. But I, overall, like, I, for where the reviews were, I was pretty surprised that I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean... When this project was first announced two or three or maybe four years ago, I just remember thinking to myself, like, why Dumbo? Not, like, why would he feel inclined to make another Dumbo movie, but why was Tim Burton the filmmaker who felt like this is a story he needed to tell? And um, as I was watching the film, it kind of made a little more sense to me. I mean, obviously the circus element, like, uh, Tim Burton just loves the circus. Uh, He also loves to tell stories about, like, outsiders uh, kind of like the misfits who don't quite fit into the commercial society and, uh, you know, just kind of learning to find yourself and stuff like that. Those are very prevalent elements in a lot of Tim Burton's other films, and they're prevalent in this film as well. 
Now, the problem with this film, I guess, is that the message of the film is about kind of sticking it to the corporation and telling them, you know, like, you can prove it to yourself that you can stand on your own two legs and kind of make your own act, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess for Disney to tell that story now, which is uh, about, like, a couple weeks, maybe even a week or less, uh, after they completed their Fox merger, it, it feels a little disingenuous or maybe even a bit false to have this this message coming from a big uh, Disney movie. It's almost like kind of like they're... They're snidely like I don't know. I don't. It just feels a little cruel in a way. It just feels cheap and a little dark for them to be yeah. telling this message at this point in time. I think that's more of a coincidence as far as the timing is concerned. But at the same time, there is something about a studio like this who is growing increasingly uh, commercial, and that they are acquiring all these different studios and putting them under their house and their brand yeah. to have a story that's championing original voices in a remake and all this stuff. It It's a little odd to have uh, that message be the main takeaway of the film. I think that might be also why some people are criticizing the film, and I can understand that. Like you're saying, I think there is not a perfect film here. It, it does have a lot of problems, and I think we'll mention a few of them in a little bit, but I agree with you. I think on the whole, I mean, I haven't really been big fan of the other live action remakes that we've gotten from Disney thus far. Um, Jungle Book was fine. I thought it was decent, but um, yeah, Beauty and the Beast was just, it just felt so commercial and cynical in a way that it, it you could, re- I don't know if you could tell beyond studio influence, like who was a filmmaker of that, like what was the commercial drive of that beyond money? I don't like to be cynical in that regard, but it just seems like that movie was made more for the end product like getting the money out of it as opposed to any like artistic value to it and that's a very uh, depressing thought to think and i like to think that most films are made with some personal or artistic aspirations but it, it sometimes feels like these movies are a little uh more for the end or the bottom line as opposed to the ultimate artistic integrity now i do think with this film while i i don't know if i felt compared to some of the other Tim Burton films that this one had his stamp as often, like you, you don't see his, uh, I guess kind of cliched, uh, cinematic touches are not so cliched in some cases in here quite as much, but I do think for as much as people rile against Tim Burton, I will say, I like Tim Burton. I feel like he gets a bit, a bad rap just because he kind of hires the same people, I guess a lot. And he has, uh, a similar Keller Plowlet in some of his movies. And he, ha- he hires Danny Elfman a lot. I don't know. Do you know exactly why people make fun of Tim Burton, Corey? I think he's an easy target because, like, his movies are shirts at Hot Topic. Yeah. I think his movies attract such an obvious fan base, and they attract such a, like, a, I don't know, just, like, this angst that sometimes people feel like it's just so cheesy. Like, I mean, you know, you look at – he was – People just like don't always, I think, acknowledge history as much as they need to. He was an electrifying filmmaker in the late eighties and early nineties. Oh, I mean, for sure. Ed, their hands, Ed Wood, two Batman films, Pee Wee Herman's Big Journey, like mm-hmm. uh, Beetlejuice. Like he was making some really out there stuff, and he really was one of the very first directors that did two things. I mean, he brought the old fifties, you know. B movies and that Roger Corman, like he brought a lot of that to the mainstream. And he also took, I think, 
And some people had done that very similarly, but he also brought it almost to family audiences. Like, you know, you can't necessarily say like that, you know, David Lynch and John Carpenter, while brilliant filmmakers at their heyday were adaptable for a wide audience. Uh-huh. Like you couldn't sit your kids down and watch the thing. Now maybe you did and maybe yeah. you're dad, but like I just look at stuff like Edward Scissorhands and, you know, Beetlejuice and those were family friendly almost. I mean they were a little edgy and they were edgy enough to be PG thirteen, but in the Batman films, but you could take your family to that. You could take a kid that was maybe eight, nine years old and let them be exposed to some darker material that still was palatable. And I think that's been Tim Burton's MO. Now he's done some hard work that's been pretty edgy, but mm-hmm. I think he wanted to tell stories for outsiders. Because I think he always felt like one. Um, and I think early in his career, he did those really well. I mean, Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure is one of my favorite movies. I think it's brilliant. It I think does. that's character. It's yeah, it's, it's perfect. I mean, the biker scene, the just a little callback. So just, <laughs> it's just so much brilliant stuff. The final act. I mean, the bad guy who's obviously very relevant now. It's just like, it's it's great. And I think that what happened to Tim Burton is what happens to a lot of filmmakers like Tim Burton. And he's not any different from a lot of the other people. He just went commercial, and he got he got more and more opportunities to tell big canvas storytelling. And I think that you know you can look at something like Planet of the Apes and see him going into an opportunity that he probably wasn't the right person for. He didn't have the right story to tell. And it just like, you look at that and then people who find his films to be easy targets. And I feel like some people look at Tim Burton and say, okay, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's just the hot topic thing. It's like sometimes the fan bases. And again, a nightmare before Christmas, a film he produced for Henry Selleck, Disney, that film is really good. It's very unique. It's very kind of, it's a fascinating dichotomy between the macabre and the innocence of Christmas. And it's a well done, but that fan base is obnoxious. Uh-huh. And I think that Tim Burton fans cause people to get sour on Tim Burton movies. And I think that's his central problem is that like he attracts such an obvious, sometimes annoying fan base that, you know, again, everybody knows a nightmare on Christmas. The merchandise for that is just so, it's just a gas of just, you know, it's so, it's just corny and just so, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it gives you a certain feeling. And I think that's the problem with Tim Burton is that his movies attract that sort of feeling to them. If you kind of put it in the wrong audience, but I think when you just boil down who he is as a filmmaker, I think he is one of the most exciting people in a very anonymous time of filmmaking. The late eighties, early nineties are not like a hotbed. Like we don't have that many great films that came out of that period. Now the early nineties had some really exciting stuff. You begin to get into the Sundance craze and indie filmmaking was really at its nadir, but the eighties are regarded as kind of an anonymous time. Like their sci-fi was in a good place. You had some good niche films, but like, you know, for the filmmakers that were coming out of that period, Tim Burton was one of the main ones and he was one of the ones that had that distinct style. So I think he deserves a lot more respect. I'm a huge Tim Burton fan. Um, I will always show up for what he does. I don't always enjoy it. Uh, some of his movies I really don't like, mm-hmm. but I, I think he's always a voice that's worth hearing. And I think that's partly why, you know, while I think this is one of his more anonymous works, I could still see him at, at times very prevalently in this. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, I think that's pretty on point. Um, yeah, there's just something about his films, uh, even some of the weaker ones, 
that you can still tell, like you're saying, that it's him. Like you can tell that he's the one behind the wheel and that he's the one that's making this film. And sometimes when you have studio films like this, like they can get a little anonymous. And I, I, I am a little bummed that this film feels a little more on the anonymous side of Tim Burton's filmography. But I do think there are moments in this film that I think endeared me enough to appreciate what Tim Burton was doing. I think ultimately the first half of the film is a little stronger than the second. Would you agree with that? Interesting. I kind of think that the film reaches a plateau once Keaton comes into the picture. Yeah. And once you enter him to the point where you get to the end of the very first circus performance, mm-hmm. I think it hits this like, this is really good type of mode. And it's very at home for him. But then I think it kind of fades out a little bit. I, I wasn't as enamored with the attempts to remake Dumbo as I was the attempts to, you know, no pun intended, enlarge Dumbo, I guess, in terms of, like, you know, telling a new story with it, even though there's some obvious irony. My favorite part of the movie was the very first circus performance. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was riveting. Sad filming. Dumbo for the win. <laughs> That's right. Sad Dumbo for the win. Sad Clown Dumbo. That's good. Oh, no, actually, um, it's the... Uh, the oh, wait, first... you're, oh, you're thinking of the baby scene. Yeah, yeah I, I know what you're talking about. I, I jumped too soon. Oh, no, actually, I'm going way in the future. I'm going, like, the very first circus thing in Dreamland. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. There are a couple of circus scenes, so I get... <laughs> That's true. The, yeah. This movie is, like, three-fourths circus. Yeah. So it's, like, it's very... Uh, it's not circus anonymous. Yeah, the only thing it's missing is Andy circus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, there's, like, a family circus strip flying in the Yeah. <laughs> everywhere. What's that family called? They're they're in the audience, I guess. I, I forget what they're yeah, called. Exactly. It's some kids like daddy life lessons. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and it's like ah, life. But um, it's like we don't tell like, jokes for forty years. <laughs> exactly. The <laughs> joke that you continue to keep following along with things yeah. that you're seeing in your real life. But yeah. Anyway, enough uh, enough trashing the family circus. <laughs> yeah, seriously, that circus needs to leave town on it. Oh man. Okay. But anyway, as you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, but it's that scene when you first get into Dreamland, and I guess this is like a minor spoiler, but they don't stay at the main circus. They go to like this theme park. It's like almost like a retro Disney World almost of like just it. It reminded me of like Disney World mixed with like steampunk Moron Mountain from Space Jam. I don't know why that's what came to my mind, but I remember this the layout design for Moron Mountain was almost kind of ominous. For a theme park, like they pick up some of the gaudier nature of it, and I think that's what Tim Burton wanted to do because he makes this just lavish set piece of mm-hmm. just nineteen twenties teens, just like blow your mind, steal, like you know, yeah, just you know, it's like something like it's like something like William Joyce or the guy that yeah, the guy that does Roly Poly and all that. Like it's just like something he would have designed because it's just so you know of that era. Mm-hmm. But it's like they have this circus scene, and the way that Tim Burton directs it, it's a complete all. It's just like the building tension with um, the uh, production design and Danny Elfman's score, and it's the very first time Devil's flying in front of a big audience. And it's just the way he builds it up. He just like he has such a reverence for that mo- those moment in movies that just swell you and just like gra- grip you by the throat. And I think Tim Burton's always been really good at those. I'm just like wanting to kind of get you to a point where it's like, you will be reverent. You will respect this. And I feel weird saying that about the Dumbo movie, but I, that was a movie where I was, I was kind of wrapped for a second. I was like, this is really, really good. And those like those 
kind of pan in scenes of like the long shots of like Keaton looking down on his creation and people observing in the audience. And I think that's what Tim Burton values about the cinematic experience is I don't just want to make things that are weird. I want to make things that are wild. I want you to really feel that sense of awe. And I feel like that's how he approaches movies. It's how a lot of people approach movies. And I love that in commentary that entertainment does sometimes it comments on the nature of how entertainment makes you feel. And it was just such a great moment. And I just loved that when Tim Burton got his teeth into that storyline, which I think is one of the big reasons he wanted to tell the story, but everything else, you know, it kind of tapers back out. I don't think the family story is that strong. And it's just kind of like the frustrating parts of him mixed in with the parts of him that made him so great to begin with. For sure. I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think the first, I guess I'd be the first two thirds are really where the movie kind of flies or it soars, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just unfortunate that that last act where you just see kind of where it, you see from the beginning where it's going to go, but I, or at least once that second act starts, but like when it really just comes into play, like you know what's going to happen. It just feels like you're just, you're just kind of, uh, what's the term? Like you're just kind of like waiting it out until the end. Like yeah. It's just, like you're, you're biding your time. Right. Yeah. There you go. And like the climax, it's fine. It just feels very serviceable. Like sure. it just feels like Tim Burton on autopilot at that point. Like he's like, I did what I wanted to do. Let's just wrap this up so you guys can go home. You know, the kids are getting restless. Let's just let's just finish this going. And that's a bummer because I mean, like, there's so much about the the first two acts. I agree with you that I think is so winning and endearing that to have it just kind of end on a whimper there for the last act. Just it, it does take the steam out a little bit, especially because it, it focuses so much on these emotional crux with the human characters, which I guess ultimately, for me at least, weren't really there. I mean, no. I think Colin Farrell, he, he's he's fine in this. I think he's been better, certainly. I think his acts in this is a little questionable, which is uh, surprising uh, because he's been usually pretty good about his accents. But how do you feel about that one, Corey? I, the human element didn't get me, especially the family, because yeah. I felt he, the that Aaron Kruger, who I thought did a good job of writing certain characters in this, like I really appreciated what he did with Mike Heaton's character. I thought it was an interesting read on the kind of crooked visionary almost. Yeah, or, we should uh, mention that it's pretty apparent that they're they're uh, poking fun or they're they're uh, um, studying, I guess, P.T. Bartman or late period P.T. Bartman when he's yeah. kind of uh, after the uh, greatest showman period of his life if he was ever really at that point, because I think that movie is mostly fictional. But that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's definitely, yeah, like the the corporate corrupt man who is kind of like a snake oil salesman who's like selling this promise that he's not going to fulfill. He's just going to yes. kind of like take your land and not really care what happens to you mm-hmm. kind of guy. And yeah, we've seen that before, but I think I agree with you that Keaton's performance is what kind of makes it a little more interesting, just mainly because it's, Keaton's first time working with Tim Burton and I think almost 30 years, right? Yeah, it's been a long time. Like I, I think this is the first time since Batman Returns. Yeah, long overdue. Yeah, and then that's also fun because we mentioned that Danny DeVito's in the film and they, they yeah. switched. Danny DeVito's like the good guy in this and uh, Michael Keaton's obviously the villain. So it's kind of a, a bit of an ironic turn of events given that their last collaboration was Batman Returns. But yeah. <laughs> it's just like... And again, we'll talk about DeVito, but I think it's great. This, but, oh, yeah, he's fantastic, always. But Oh, yeah. And I just didn't... The family storyline to me was just so spelled out. 
And it was just so obvious because obviously maternal loss is such a huge part of that first Dumbo movie. Mm-hmm. It's a huge part of a lot of the early Disney films. That's a very common thread. I think that Walt Disney understood the pangs of of adolescence missing a mother's influence. I mean, you have like the scene in Bambi that is so tragic. You have the lost boys who don't have their mom with them. Like you can kind of hop around and see Pinocchio doesn't have that maternal influence on him. Like, it's a very common theme to me in a lot of the early Disney movies. And I feel like in this movie, it's just so shoehorned in that the kids just say over and over again, I miss my mom or I don't have a mom. And it's just like the day the video is like, Oh, these kids don't have a mom here. Colin Farrell's like, I miss your mother. It's like, all right. Like, I feel like it was just so that they were just written into the movie to have some sort of a placebo to keep Dumbo like levied with having some people around him to kind of like be like, hello Dumbo or let's give you it. They just felt like kind of, plot points and plot devices that kind of help move the story along with those actual characters. And obviously um, there's a potent idea in place. And the most frustrating thing that I look back is that Colin Farrell's character, they create this fascinating, you know, a one-armed veteran coming back from world war one to kind of this single dad life of raising these two kids in a circus. And he's very insecure that he doesn't have an arm. He doesn't really, he has a really bad kind of like fake arm that he carries around. He has some like worries there. And then you have like Dumbo who is like the physically deformed too with the big ears, of course. And there's like one moment where Colin Farrell like gets invested in the fact that he feels bad for Dumbo because he can relate. But the film never explores it past that. And the whole movie is just like Colin Farrell goes back to being a plot point. Yeah. And that's like there was such rich thematic stuff there that if they'd given that relationship a lot more, maybe had him be more of a trainer for Dumbo as opposed to the two kids who don't really do anything. And no offense to those children. I'm so happy they got a break. But yeah. it, just, it just felt like such a missed opportunity and such a, you know, obviously the mo- you don't show up to see the humans. You show up to see the little baby elephant. But right. I think that that was one of the grand faults of this film is that like you had opportunity here to deepen this and enrich this and tack some things on that really could have been more potent, but you chose more to focus on the spectacle and the feel, which I respect. It has some really great moments of that, but it just kind of leaves you more entertained than I guess thought provoked. Yeah. I mean like stuff like that, I can kind of see like the boardroom meeting, I guess for this movie with Tim Burton and Disney executives, like, they're like, well, are we gonna have animals talking like we did with Jungle Book? Like, no, I'm not. I'm not about that. We don't have animals talking in my movie. He's no. like, all right, we'll have uh, some human characters. And he's like, we we always have single parents because we can't have just two parents in our movies. <laughs> um, it's like, why don't we do something like where it's like two moms? Like the mom, the kids have a mom, and like they kind of Dumbo has a mom. It's like, no, how am I gonna air up my daddy issues? It's like, well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, it's like a back and forth. All right, guys, we're gonna break yeah. for lunch. We'll get back to the more right. after uh, this. Yeah. Some autographs done, yeah. But yeah, I mean I agree with you. I think I think there is something there, especially with Colin Farrell's character and what his relationship to Dumbo could have been. It just seems like they they wanted to either have it through the eyes of the children or through Colin Farrell. It felt like two different ideas that were kind of half baked. Like you gotta pick one or the other, I guess. Like you either have to focus more on Colin Farrell or more on the kids. And I think I personally would have preferred maybe the Colin Farrell approach just because I don't I don't think these kids are bad, but they just feel like blank slates in the film. Like I really like the girl tells us constantly she's into science. Like she loves <laughs> silence science. She wants to be a scientist. She's all about science. Could you tell me one thing about the the, the boy <laughs> character? Like anything. <laughs> he um 
he was not as tall as his sister. That's true. Yeah, he was younger, I guess. Yeah, he was not. Uh, he wore a hat. Did he wear overalls? I think so. Yeah. He he served no purpose in he, this film. Yeah, he, there's just nothing to that character. I could honestly not tell you like anything beyond his appearance, who he was, what he wanted out of life. Let me read the video. Yeah. This best I could come up with. I didn't know his name was Joe. I, I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> the, obviously, his dad's name was Holt. Right. Holt's enthusiastic son. Yeah. All they could really do is just get a general adjective. It's like he sometimes he looks excited in the movie, and it's like, all right, well, I guess we just use that in the description. <laughs> Good for the PR team for trying to find something. But, yeah, I, I think that's – the disappointing part of this is that, you know, and, and I feel like this is a good time to transition to talk about DeVito. Because I think yeah. he's, well, I was just going to say, I mean, with the kids, what I find disappointing about is that, like, Tim Burton generally has been pretty good about finding the inner life of children characters. He has. What was that? Yeah, no, he totally has. Like, Miss Peregrine's, it was like his last movie was, like, mainly a child cast. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah, you just see these films that he's done, you know, Frank and Weenie we mentioned. Uh, I would argue Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Though that movie is not without problems, I think the way it depicts Charlie is usually pretty good. Mm. Um, you just have like these films where you know, obviously he has like a type, you know, like the outsider artistic kid. But I just seeing this film where he usually is able to give his child protagonist a little more life and investment, and therefore kind of have that reflected into your experience of the film and the way you kind of perceive the film. Uh, it just it just seems very very lacking to have these characters just basically be nothing yet having to be the crux of like the carrying the emotional part of the film away from Dumbo's like relationship with his mom, which I think in the scheme of things with the human characters gets overlooked, unfortunately. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Which I think it's a, a big, big problem with the film, but anyway, yeah, let's waste no more time and finally talk about Danny DeVito, who, as you said, is fantastic in this film. Actually, fun fact, um, Nico Parker, who plays Millie in the film, um, the girl we were talking about, yeah. you know who uh, her mom is? Uh, Nicole Parker? Danny Newton. Tandy Newton, okay. Yeah. Huh. Fascinating. Yeah, how about that? Good for Danny Newton's kid. That's... Yeah. <laughs> Old Nico's finally making her way in the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But anyway, Danny DeVito. Yes, always. All right. Uh, so was there something particular you wanted to talk to about him, or just that he's just fantastic in general? Because I, I have some notes, but I want to hear from you first. I, I mean, I just think he's one of our really underappreciated actors. Like, I think he, he's really, he, he found that niche on It's Always Sunny for a better part of a decade. And I think it, he was happy there and he didn't really want to do a whole lot. And I think that lots of movies kind of went past him and didn't really know what to do with him for certain things. Like, he's only done two movies since joining the cast of It's Always Sunny. He did Todd Solon's Wiener Dog and then that Michael Keaton film, Solid, Solid, Solitary Man. Which, oh, okay. Which is actually really good. I like that one a lot. Interesting. Okay. I haven't seen that, but, um, he's, his filmography is obviously was a major actor in the, um, nineties, very late eighties or the whole eighties, nineties and early thousands. But yeah, he just did. It's always sunny. Found a very happy niche there, I guess. And this is really, this is his first major motion picture role. Um, since, Really, like in a major studio release since 2006's Deck the Halls, which was Oof, obviously not a good movie. Yeah, like not not a good yeah. movie at all. So, I mean, this is his big return to movie making, and I think that he's great in the movie, and he's just so well cast in that role. And 
it's just great to see him back because uh, DeVito is just such a was such an original actor. Nobody really could do what he did, and he's so great in Tim Burton stuff. Like when they would work together, like it just it's so great to see them back together because he has not done a Tim Burton film since Big Fish. So uh, I think that's one of the really good aspects of this movie is that you know DeVito's there, he's very well cast, and he's able to really kind of flex and know what he's great at. Yeah, I mean, just. Uh continuing off to that point, I think one of the reasons I was actually looking forward to this film a little more than most people is just not only for Danny DeVito finally working with uh, Tim Burton and also, you know, Michael Keaton returning to work with Tim Burton, but also we have Eva Green working with Tim Burton again for the third time. And I think, I think Eva Green and uh, Tim Burton have been doing some great work together with Dark Shadows and Miss Peregrine. I, I don't think those films are great. I actually don't like Dark Shadows all that much, but I think she just, she feels like she's giving a new energy to Tim Burton in a lot of uh, his films of late, and I think that that's kind of needed. I think it also gives a femininity that has been absent from a lot of his films. And I'm a little bummed that she hasn't gotten a lead role yet. I guess Miss Peregrine was pretty close, but it was ultimately another child protagonist. Uh, What's his name? The Ender's Game kid. Um, But Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, (laughs) But this film, yeah, she just she's fine. It's just our character is very, very underwritten. I, I, but you were saying that off the air that you didn't think it was that good of a performance from her, though. Yeah, it's just kind of like I don't know. I, I feel like it got a little bit better as it went on. I think she's a very good actress in general and obviously has that rapport with Burton. Um, but I don't know. I just felt like that. this is just another part of the problem with the script is that the, the characters didn't have anything that the the actors couldn't give them. And I felt like those, some of those characters were just so wooden that it was like the actors really couldn't do anything that the page wouldn't let them do. Yeah. Like that, you know, DeVito and Keaton and at some point Farrell, they had opportunities to flex around a little bit, but like, you know, Farrell's stuck in the accent. Uh, Eva Green is stuck in her accent. She, she's supposed to be French. Like there's just only so much these characters could do that the actors could maybe give them some nuances, but I don't know. It's just, it's just more, not really bad, but it's really forgettable. Yeah. I'm ultimately more favorable on her in this film than you, because um, I, I think ultimately it's another example. Like we were saying that her characters feels like half developed or half baked at this point. She's uh, are kind of endearing, another endearing look at Dumbo where she kind of grows to love the character the way the other characters do. And that's fine, but that's like the third time that's happened in the film. <laughs> it's like, we all love Dumbo, but how many scenes are we going to have where characters fall in love with Dumbo? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you it's know like what? the scene where um, uh, Homer is trying to do the uh, pitch for Poochie. It's oh, like, yeah. who, uh, let's see. How, who, uh, people is, it need po- to- is it Pookie? No, wait, no, Pookie's Garfield's uh, pet. No, you're right, Poochie, yeah. <laughs> Poochie versus Pookie. He's like, uh, where's Dumbo? Why aren't people talking about yeah. Dumbo? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> any scene where Dumbo's on the scene, we have to ask, where's Dumbo? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, I think she does well with the part. I think she proves like she has great physicality in all of her parts. And I think that's apparent here as well. Mm. I think she brings a great life to a lot of her roles. I think what she's doing here is fine. It's just unfortunate that her character is another, it's not a blank slate compared to the kids, but it just feels a little empty. Like there's something there. It needs to have something more to it. And that's, like you're saying, that's 
something that's ultimately kind of frustrating with this film is that you can see that there's a pretty good film in here. There's a decent film maybe, but there's a great or good film in here that could have come out. It just feels like they kind of like went to lunch a little too early. Like there's just something in the screenwriting process or something with the storytelling. There's an extra step that's missing here and that's just unfortunate. But anyway, I, I went off uh, from what we should have been talking about earlier, which is Danny DeVito mm. and uh, goodness me. I yeah I I can't agree more with you. It just he is fantastic. I I really think he is one of our he's one of my favorite actors. I think he is one of our greatest actors. Just that he brings so much life and uh, versatility to each role, and he can be funny and very serious in any given moment. And um, <laughs> there's something that I think would annoy me that he spends half the movie kind of doing like antics with a monkey. That's true. Like that keeps like going into like his drawer and stuff, but at the same time, Devito sells it, man. Like he, he does. Yeah, it's just so he he makes it work. Although I have to ask, and did you notice this at the beginning of the film? They the opening shot that the train they show a picture of two Dan Devitos, right? Mm-hmm. And my thought process, you know, I, I'm going berserk in my brain. I'm like, are we gonna get two Dan Devitos in this one movie? Life can never be that good, Will. I know it's it's just that they promise it. <laughs> they do. It's just like a cruel tease. Yeah, it's like why would you even give me that? Why would you give me that thought if you're not going to de- deliver on it? Like I just kept waiting and waiting. I'm like, I think that's what fueled me through the third act. I was like, maybe that second day in Devito is going to finally show up at the end to be like, is there a circus in town? Did I hear something about a flying elephant? It's like brother. It's like- it's like, why now, if that didn't work out, and the Danny DeVito movie literally called Twins doesn't feature two Danny DeVitos? I don't know if it's ever going to happen. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> oh, well. I know. Life can only be so sweet. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's a good point, any to provide our final thoughts on Dumbo. We went a little longer than I anticipated, but... That's all right. I think we had a good it's conversation. Honoring the size of his beautiful ears, you know, we're just go- we're gonna have to be a little bit bigger than we normally are. And that's they, a, yeah. that's true. Yeah, uh, Corey, provide some of your final thoughts on the film and what letter grade you give it. Um, you know, I, I think it's an enjoyable family film. Um, it's much better. I kind of went in with very low expectations because I'd seen the reviews. I kind of seen pretty more about you know, like. Some people enjoyed it, some people didn't, but I think it was Bill Jabiri that was like, this movie is in equal parts like enthralling and frustrating, and I think that's a great way to put it, or kind of paraphrasing what he said. Like, I think it's a good movie, and I think it's a movie that has some very untapped potential. I think it's a movie that occasionally reaches that potential. Um, I think it's a movie that kind of at times squanders that potential, and I think that's just where Tim Burton is as a filmmaker right now. Um, I think he still has a great movie in him. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think he can, if he finds the right material, he can still tell a great story. Uh, but I think that this movie is just, I, I'd give it, I would say a BB minus. I think it kind of teeters around that. It has some highs that would make me even go a little bit higher if that were the whole movie. But I think it's just kind of what it is. It's, it's a nice, charming film. I think it detaches itself from the original in ways that are wise and in ways that aren't so wise. So, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the opportunity for Burton to be able to tell the story. I think it was one that was personal to him. I think he was able to take a movie that influenced him. And, uh, you know, like I think he was having a blast in that balloon scene where he was like the the, the, the bubbles where he was doing the pink elephant. Oh, was, yeah, which we didn't even talk about. That was a great scene. It was a great scene. And, and I love just, that um, they cut 
cutting back to Dumbo's reaction. That was like the same reaction like four times. But it was just so cute. Like he was just so enamored with these pink elephants, just nodding and along. Like how that yeah. shot where the pink elephants kind of disappear, and it's just that still shot of the light leaving Dumbo's eye. Yeah, and it was just like it was really good, and they kind of transitions back to where the circus is because mm-hmm. he's now the main attraction. Like I thought that was riveting. I think that's why I love that scene so much. Yeah. That's definitely the most Burton-esque scene yeah. in the film. Yeah, it's definitely like the most like when you thought in your brain, like, what is Tim Burton's Dumbo going to be? That's where that scene really like proves like, oh, yeah, this is what you had in mind, I think. So, um, yeah, I guess for me, I don't I don't know what it is about this movie. Like, I kept thinking, like, when I was writing the review for the website, I was like, what am I going to say about Dumbo? And I wrote like 2000 words about oh it. This conversation, I was like, what are we going to say about Dumbo? We went on for like 40 minutes talking about this movie. So I don't know what it is about this film, but I end up having a lot to say about it. However, I do agree with you. I think it's ultimately just somewhere down the middle. It's kind of a forgettable film for him, I think, in the scheme of things. Not right now, but I think in like a week or two. I don't see myself thinking too much about Dumbo or really having too much of my mind about Dumbo. I think it serves its purpose. I agree with you that I think it's a little more personal than people are giving it credit for in some critical circles, but... Uh, there's highs in this movie and there are lows. And I, I think the highs are high enough that it's a redeemable enough experience, but the lows are so frustrating and annoying that you just, you just feel like, why couldn't someone just do this a little better? Why couldn't Tim Burton get his act a little bit better and like make a, like a good, good film here as opposed to just a serviceable, decent one. But ultimately I do think there's a little more worth and, uh, sincerity here than you see in, like you said, the last beauty and the beast film or uh, whatever other live action remake that I'm forgetting about right now. Um, yeah. I think it's ultimately a B minus film. It's, it's just serviceable enough to the point where I don't think it's quite B territory, but I would be remiss if it's C plus territory. Cause I think there's just good stuff in here. And uh, I think ultimately if general audiences come to see it, Tim Burton fans are not, they're probably going to get a good time. I think younger yeah. audiences are probably going to get the most out of this film. Just because they probably aren't familiar with like the kind of tropiness, they're not gonna probably think too much about uh, how the message can be a little false, given that it's from Disney. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's ultimately a decent film, and I, th- I think it's not doing too well at the box office right now. Interesting. It was like a one seventy budget, so that's yeah. Like... It 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 costs a pretty penny, and um, I didn't end up looking at the box office results for it yet, but I just remember hearing that. Oh, let's see. Um. It looks like it grossed uh, forty-five million so far, which isn't oh, bad. They'll make it back yeah. internationally. Like, I mean, you'll get your you'll get your investment back, but it just may not be a huge grocer. Yeah, it's yeah. about it's about one hundred and sixteen worldwide. So I think it'll be it'll probably break even at least. Yeah, it, it'll it'll do okay. But um, yeah, I don't think it's quite the uh, Alice in Wonderland hit that Disney was hoping for. Yeah, I think that's exactly what they wanted, and that's what they didn't get. But oh well, Corey, are you ready to talk about the beach film? I am. I'm scared we're going to spend longer on this than Dumbo. <laughs> you, know, you know, John's not here. We can talk about this movie as long as we want. <laughs> That's right. We, time is only a mere construct when it comes to the beach film. Yeah. But anyway, um, did you want to go and describe what this film's about, or do you want me to do it? Um, I can do my best i guess i was gonna say i don't want to put you in a a, a tough spot but uh, if you have a fair description of the film i'd be happy to hear it it is about a hedonistic 
beach bum that is also somehow like this um I called him like the Corona King. That's good. Uh, in like this movie, it's like if you took the Wolf of Wall Street and made him to be the Jordan Belfort of Margaritaville. Um, I think that this character is like this guy who just goes around all day and it's like a character in a Jimmy Buffett song. Um, yeah. But Harmony Corrine like doesn't exactly want to um, excuse this character and is pretty critical of it throughout because this guy is just he's, he's so hedonistic and so world weary and so you know, let the good times roll. And it's basically like, just like a beach meme, almost like one of those stupid, like things you see on Facebook, people share about the beach. Cause it's like, it's like beach culture enwrapped in this. Big... Life, like, like a uh, life's a beach kind of guy. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, I have no consequences. And he's also like probably a millionaire. So he's incredibly financially secure. He's this famous author who writes these like stoner wisdom just it's like he's like he's like the emperor's new clothes almost of yeah like, well there's a very much like a dude element to it where he just yeah. kind of slacks around and the dude is also rich for kind of mysterious and unclear reasons and yeah. like yeah he's like a detached from the dude because the dude is like empathetic and he like right. cares about the people around him and the beach bum moondog as he's called matthew mcconaughey's character he just doesn't really care he's kind of like he doesn't hate anybody but he doesn't really like He's really out for himself and what makes him happy and all the people in his yeah, life. Yeah, he's, wa- he's a wanderer. He just kind yeah. of – he gets what he wants out of people. But when push yeah. comes to shove and they want something serious or they uh, are in like a moment of personal crisis, he's like, well, that's my time to get And so Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's just kind of like, I wish you well, but I need to go you know, smoke weed and hang out on the beach. I got a life to live on my exactly. own. Exactly. I'm a beach bum after all. I'm not a lifesaver. Like, <laughs> yeah. Which part of the beach culture do you want me to fill here, buddy? But um, yeah, and the movie is just like this misadventures that he goes on, and they kind of weaves this theme together that he doesn't really have to answer to anyone, but life begins to kind of happen still, and you still have to see the consequences of what it's like to live a life like this in a very kind of abstract way, and it feels like it's a very over like a, this is not a real person and you wouldn't really actually see real life unfold like this. But I think that's just part of Corrine's harmony, Corey and the writer director, his surreal look at the world. And it's just like, I think it's a dark movie for a movie that I think that, you know, has a lot of whimsy to it. and You know, good timey, like, you know, everybody's having a blast party atmosphere, but I think it's very melancholic and, it's a character study about who Moondog is and McConaughey who just goes 120% into this role and is just face fantastic in it. But oh, at the yeah. same time, this is a movie that's like, this is like, you know, taking a spoonful of tobacco in your mouth. Like it's, this is supposed to taste bad mm-hmm. and it's funny. It can be very fascinating, but I think that like Corian's films, it's like, he doesn't exactly want you to leave feeling good. Like he, obviously I think I appreciate his filmmaking a lot for what I've seen, but He's really taking his last, the latter part of his career and is focusing on this Florida party culture, I think, is this fascinating microcosm for where we are right now. And I know you don't necessarily agree with that always, but I'm curious to get your thoughts. Yeah, well, I should say out right off the bat, I'm not really a fan of Harmony Korine, which mm-hmm. I guess surprises people because I've talked to people and they, I've mentioned that and they're like, we would have thought you'd been a huge fan of Harmony Korine. I don't know what that says about me or people I hang out with, but... 
Uh, yeah, I should mention that this is the follow-up film to Spring Breakers, which came out, I believe, six years ago now? Yeah, 2013. Yeah, and that's a film where, at that point, Harmony Corinne, uh, he got to start on, like, the very, very indie scene. He kind of wanted to get into, like, that uh, Werner Herzog phase where he did movies like Gummo, yeah. Julian Donkey Boy, and uh, films of that like. Where yeah, the screenplay for Larry Clark's Pids. Yeah, of course. Yeah, he wrote that apparently in nineteen. Oh, wow. um, yeah, he he got to start very early into the game, and he had like kind of like that punk attitude, that kind of punk rock attitude to filmmaking, mm-hmm. where a lot of his earlier films don't really have structure to them. They're just kind of like s- slice of life, like scenes in people's lives, and they're usually kind of impoverished people who uh, are just kind of not great characters, but they have like these stories. They have like these kind of particular worldviews. That um, I think he cares to an extent about his characters, but there's something kind of cruel about his earlier films that mm. I don't know, they just rub me the wrong way. And I just feel like he wants to say something in his earlier films, but I never get the sense that he's actually saying anything, but he wants to give the impression that he is saying something. And people kind of perceive different things that, that may or may not be there. But I do agree with you that I, I think there's something to this film particularly about Harmony Korine as a person as a, that I think kind of shines throughout. And I think that's what makes me like this film a little bit more than Spring Breakers, where that film, I do agree that, you know, obviously the intention of the film, it's kind of like you, you, they're trying to sell you on like, like scantily clad women and Spring Break. Like it's going to be like a, like Van Wilder type comedy. And then you watch it. And it's like this commentary on uh, like youth culture and like kind of like this, like Spring Break mentality and stuff. And, to me, that that felt a little pretentious. Interesting. Yeah, I, I just felt like it yeah. just felt so obvious to me, like with like Selena uh, Gomez characters, like Faith, and then like she leaves, and so we, they lose Faith, and uh, I don't know, it wasn't my scene. But I think that film was better than his other films because, like, you could see yeah. the early signs of what would become a film like Beach Bum, where mm-hmm. to me, I I don't know if you saw this film, but Mr. Lonely is my personal favorite Harmony mm-hmm. Corinne film, and I think. The reason why I like that is because it feels less like him trying to comment on different characters and more just him reflecting upon himself. And that film where he is, uh, that film is about like a, like Michael Jackson impersonator who kind of falls in line with these other impersonators. And he just kind of goes on this island, Misfit Toys, where everyone's just kind of doing their thing. And that kind of felt like him where he was kind of going into the scene based on his influences. And, you know, obviously, like we said, Herzog and a couple others. Uh, where he's just kind of fitting to this like art house scene and to this film, I think in some ways it feels like a commentary on like him approaching middle age where he had like this kind of like earlier rambunctious childhood. If you don't know, he got like banned on David Letterman because he like looked through Meryl Streets purse or something like that. He has kind of a history as, as an earlier, uh, in his earlier career. But I think with this film, he's kind of looking inward and realizing that, uh, you know, like he, he's going to get older. Like he is at middle age right now. And, uh, you know, the party is still going to be going on elsewhere, you know, with like the Zac Efron characters of the world, but his, like his moon dog is not going to be rocking the same way. And even if he is, there's going to be a melancholy there. There's going to be an inherent sadness to that because like, is this character ever going to grow up and kind of learn from his ways? Or is he just going to kind of continue to spout like his like mumbo jumbo, like self-satisfied views of the world? And I guess that's what I took out of the film. And I, I feel like you 
agree and disagree with that notion just based on what I read from your review on Letterboxd? Corrine, to me, is really interesting because, like, he's one of ours in Nashville. He's okay. a Nashville I didn't realize he was from there. Well, I don't know if he was born here, but he lives here, and he's, like, been around here for a long time. Um, he he's, he's interesting because, like, um, the Nashville scene was one of the publications I write for. He has a history with that publication. Like, he's done, they've done lots of features on him. He was really close with um, Jim Ridley, who was the longtime editor and critic there. Oh, yeah. He passed away at 16. Um, Corian actually wrote one of the people, he was one of the people that eulogized Ridley, one of the many that kind of published something when he, when he passed. Like, so he knew who he was. And, like, it's just so fascinating to me. I remember when Spring Breakers came out, it was just such a huge deal in Nashville because, like, this is one of our local guys that had done good in a big way because it was, like, a big release and had a lot of big stars in it. And it was the biggest thing he had done so far in his career. And, I had not seen it until this past winter. Okay. And that's one of my favorite films of the decade. Wow. I, it is brilliant. I, I think it's I think it's a horror film. I think it's terrifying. I think the opening scene where he puts Skrillex over the partiers is like one of the scariest things I've seen in a very long time. Um, and again, like, I don't know. Do you go to the beach a lot? Not particularly, no. This is, to me, I, I think Corrine is a regional filmmaker. And I think he speaks some Southern truths that like I've seen a lot growing up because we would go to the beach every summer to Destin, Florida. And you just get a sense of this beach culture that, that takes hold of, especially I think of people in the Southeast. And like, that's what was so fascinating to me about spring breakers is like, I mean, I think those characters were more anonymous for they can come from anywhere, but it's like they're going down to Florida and they're kind of taking this Panama city beach approach. Just, I'm going to do whatever I want to. I have no consequences. I'm going to trash the world and feel what I want to feel. And, you know, it just, I think that that's the brilliance of Spring Breakers is it's just like, he's like trying to like point out this emptiness that is really kind of creating a cavity. And I think America's youth. And I think that, you know, this film almost feels like Spring Breakers for baby boomers or Gen Y. Like if this is, that generation's version of what they view. And I think that like having been around, like seeing like Margarita bills everywhere when you got out of town and like uh, Jimmy Buffett, who's in this movie, I don't know why, because I think Corey is basically saying his music is like the, like this Pied Piper of just terrible people. But I don't know. I felt oh, like, wow. yeah, I didn't realize he had such strongly negative opinions about Jimmy Buffett. I, I, I I like Jimmy Buffett in terms of like, I think his music's kind of harmless, but I think the culture around it, it's kind of like, almost like Tim Burton. Like I think it's fine. Like, and I think that his music is, it's, it's just beach music. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with it, but like yeah. the people that listen to it and create this culture. Yeah. Of, you obsess over it in a way. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like, and to me, this is this idea of privilege in terms of it's like it's hedonistic privilege. It's I, mm-hmm life's a beach and I want to go to the beach. And it's just like your whole life is built around this idea that I want to see pleasure and I don't, I don't have to be answered for what I do. And I'm a privileged old white person. So I'm not going to have to answer for a lot anyway. And I think Moondog in the film, like he escapes from rehab at one point, like he breaks multiple laws and like in this world, it's like Moondog's never going to get in trouble. And I think the film like shows that he has consequences left and right, but he never really feels it. And I think that, you know, uh, my letterbox, I think, sometimes sums up my ideas better than I do on paper. But uh, it's like he's trying to, like, look at this Florida party, party culture as, like, a jagged kaleidoscope for what ails us right now. And he's like, but he's not going to give you a solution either. I think he's, like, trying to show that, like, he's 
like one of these apathetic salt life millionaires who piss away meaning and morality while the bills burns and people suffer. And I feel like this film is like, it's like his response to Trumpism. I think this is his response to, this is how we got to where we got is because there are these people that are so amoral and so caught up with themselves and what makes them happy that they don't consider the world around them. And I think that Moondog is, he reminds me a lot of the Wolf of Wall Street. Like he's just this guy that goes around selling just bullcrap wisdom mm-hmm. and rolling these people up to think he's like this really cool, hip guy. And in reality, he's a loser. He sits around and drinks all day. There's this line in it that Jonah Hill has. And it's right towards the end of the movie. And I think it sums it up. And he's like this obviously well affluent lawyer. Like, yeah, he's, type. he's a very uh, strange character to me. It, it just. Yeah. Yeah. But I, we'll talk about it in a bit. Go ahead. But like, he just says something like, the best part of being rich is that I can hurt people without any consequences. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like, if you want to just say your theme out loud, that's what it was. And right. That- Which is a problem that I typically have with Korean movies. I feel like he just blatantly says what he thinks the film is about <laughs> out loud to the point where I just feel like he is either. Just he, he, I just sometimes feel like he doesn't really have respect for his audience in some ways. Like, he's like, Do I need to tell you what my movies are about? But that's like, again, that's me being petty, I guess. But sorry, I think that, no, I think that's a very valid concern. I just, for some reasons, like, I've lived in this world. I've, like, I've, I guess having like my feet in the soil almost helps me see the worms, I guess. Like, and I feel like it's just, it felt so real to me. Because, like, as, as crazy as these characters are, it's like you can see them. You can see them because Moondog can vote. I mean, I think this is the point of the movie is, like, these characters still have large impacts on the world in negative ways. And, you know, I think for a filmmaker that at times I think very validly can be questioned in terms of what's your intention? What are you trying to say? Is this really just a big joke to you? But I think he's much more introspective and I think really empathetic and concerned filmmaker, at least at this point in his career. Because he's made two films about Florida party culture that have dug deep into two separate generations and exactly what, you know, this longing for meaning and purpose and feeling that these kids in Spring Breakers have that, you know, at the end of the day, they're just as lost as anybody else. And they really are not as scary, but they make them more scary. It's like they, they don't have any malevolence in them at the end of the day, but that makes them even more malevolent. And it's like, this movie is just like, these characters are just so, world weary and just so apathetic and interesting of chasing good times that they become even more dangerous since they care less and less and less. So it's like apathy becomes in and of itself the most potent thing to care about. So I, I, I think that I really, really liked this movie. It made me very uncomfortable because it's just like, I, it doesn't offer you much of a solution or any sort of respite. And I think that's why I respect him as a filmmaker is that he doesn't offer you the easy way out. He doesn't offer you a negotiated tactic. He's going to say what he wants to say. He's going to tell how he wants to tell it. And if you like it or not, that's, that's going to be your business. But I don't know. I'm proud of him to come out of the region and tell these stories. And I need to catch myself up with his earlier work. I don't know if I would adapt to it as much since you kind of described the type of movies I don't typically enjoy. And it was kind of in your face you know, it's kind of, you know, degradation of youth. Like, I'm, I'm usually not on those. It's only like Mr. Lonely's nice. But I don't know. I think that for at least what I'm familiar with the latter part of his career, he seems to be a filmmaker who has his tab on his region and what ails it. And I, I really am enamored with that. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you and I don't, I think, for a lot of ways. But I think the way you describe his film is really spot on. And I think 
there are there are undeniable strengths to Corinne as a filmmaker. I think even the films of his I don't particularly like and might even hate in some regards, they do stick with me. They linger in a way that I think is a credit to him and that he knows exactly how to give like the atmosphere of each location to stand out. Like the locations of every one of his films, like I can see them almost vividly. Like they just stick out like the like the houses, like the location, the art set design of them, like the very particular in certain ways that are very memorable and just the set pieces stand out quite a bit. And I also think that um, he does, even when his films aren't always pretty, they're, like his earlier works, like they, they do have a distinct visual style that can feel like very intimate. And uh, it, it just gets you very close into these characters that may not always be people you want to hang out with or people you would be particularly enamored by, but they, they do linger with you. He, he does have a strong sense of character too. So I don't know. I, I have a very, I guess, mixed relationship uh, as a viewer to Harmony Corinne. I do think ultimately that the beach bum is one of his stronger efforts. Um, I do think for me, when he gets more personal, when he speaks uh, a little more from the heart as a writer, I think that stands out to me a little more than when he's trying to make a broad statement like in Spring Breakers. Now, with that said, I don't see this film having the same commercial appeal as yeah. Spring Breakers just by design. Like, I think in some ways that he's like kind of going against that and he's also kind of responding to it in this way. Like, I think Moondog's like desire to make the next tone poem is kind of a commentary on him trying to figure out how exactly am I going to follow up Spring Breakers? Like, I never expected to make a film like this big. Like, yeah. right. Yeah. Like, like what, what's my follow up going to be? I think they channels that in some ways with um, Moondog. Like, I, I think his like aspirations to like make this next great uh, either tone poem or novel. He keeps going back and forth. I remember like he like sometimes uh, suggests like he's going to make a novel. Sometimes he wants to make uh, like a collection of poems. And I think when you ultimately hear his writing, it's like, it's just, you know, like self, uh, like self celebratory, masturbatory, like, like you said, mantras, basically. <laughs> like barely even poetry. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm lingering with the film, I, but it is sticking with me. And I do think McConaughey's performance is just stellar. Yeah. I really think this is like top tier, top five performances from Matthew McConaughey. It seems kind of easy, I guess, because it just seems like a role that's catered for his sensibilities and his talents. But he's like work to make you understand like, just like the danger. And it's just like, he has to like show the pain that a lot of people, I don't want to think read into this character. It's like you, almost want to find a new dude to latch on to. But I think that McConaughey is like, no, this guy is like not a good person. <laughs> like he, not, not all right. All right. All right. No, he's not. All right. All right. All right. I all. do. I do like that. Um, the movie, like it knows that you're expecting you to have that line at some point in this film. Mm -hmm. So they give it to Martin Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> Who is great in here. Yeah, well, yeah. Martin Lawrence, I didn't want to say too much because I think, like, I guess some people don't know he's in this. So I didn't yeah. know if it's a spoiler to say he's in it. He's a boy. But he's great. Yeah. He's, this is like his first role in, like, his first film role in, like, nine years or something, eight years. Yeah. And he, like, sells it. And yeah. that's. And his, he's got a, he's got the funniest part in the movie. Yeah. The funniest and the darkest, maybe. Well, maybe second darkest. Yeah, exactly. Um,. But yeah, it's such a great moment, and I don't want to spoil it at all, because I really think that's one of the better surprises in the film, is that particular moment. So, um, I think, Zach yeah, there's... This and he's good. What was that? I like Zach Efron in this a lot, too. Yeah, I, I should note that he's not in the movie as much as I think the advertising suggests. No. They like kind of no. sell him to be like the second lead, and he has like basically a glorified cameo, like 10 mm -hmm. minutes of screen time, I think. Um, Isla Fisher's pretty good. Um, I think Snoop Dogg is actually one of the... Uh, better performances in here 
Um, and I do like that he had a little uh, duet with Jimmy Buffett because mm-hmm. just like why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's short. Yeah. Um, These characters. <laughs> yeah, I I I want to go more into this, but I feel like we might be diving the spoiler territory pretty soon. Yeah. I will say, yeah, I, I I do really appreciate what you're saying about the film, and I think you know sometimes I give Harmony Crane a bad rap, and I do think that he probably has more going on than I give him credit, but. At the same time, I do often feel like he's just kind of what's a PG version like messing with us in a lot of ways. It I could just, be. I just you feel know? like the sincerity of his works can often be debated, mm-hmm. and I think the ending of this film definitely feels like a middle finger to anybody who like takes his work seriously. Interesting. I think it's a cap. It's a. I, I, I think it's like a cap. I think it's like the exclamation point almost. Like I guess you could read it that way. I think, but I don't know. Just like that scene and then like the like uh, book reading scene just feels mm. like like you know like uh, like yeah whatever like you know I like sticking it to the audience. I feel like is the way I perceived it. <laughs> but at the same time, like you said, like there's that scene with Jonah Hill where he like kind of explains the thesis of the film, and I get what I, I think ultimately appreciate what Harmony Crin is doing here a little more than I usually do, but I just do sometimes wonder if like we put a little more stake in to his films than they might be warranting. So interesting because I'm the opposite way. I think that people like could read more into it. I think there's like I think I he's they just, do. I mean yeah. It's just so fascinating. I think that's like there's not that many directors these days where we can have these types of conversations about like intent and just like the messiness of what they're trying to do. I just I don't know. It's just, it's nice to have people like him around. That we yeah, can, like, he reminds me a little bit of Lars von Trier in that way. I guess like you, you can never really tell how sincere or how like insincere he is. Yeah, I don't know. I, that's the impression I get at least. But I will say that like, yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about this film quite a bit, and I do think what Corinne does here. Uh, it worked for me more so than it did for Spring Breakers. So I don't know if that's going to translate well to anyone who only knows Corinne through um, Spring Breakers. I think it's if you haven't seen any other Corinne film besides Spring Breakers, I guess this would probably be the best one to go with for right. your second one. Just because his other films don't really reflect either of these ones. But Stay away from Trash Jumpers. Oh, that's, I was going to say, that's the only one I haven't seen because I have my own limits. Yeah, I do. I wouldn't make it, but it was shot here. That's a, that's a natural movie. Oh, really? So it's oh, really? like, yeah, I feel like I almost have to watch it now because it's like, I might see shooting locations I recognize. And those characters came by the natural scenes office at the film's release and like, you know, it's like a photo shoot. So, but apparently it's also like, you know, one person said, I read a review on letterbox where it's like their friends started praying in the middle of the movie as if to like settle themselves to like <laughs> feel some sense of normalcy. And I was like, and what they said. And I was like, Oh wow. That's, I've not heard of that before. And I, I know the feeling. All right. Well, if you see it, more power to you, man. Exactly. I, I think that one I'm going to skip out on. Yeah, but exactly. That's, yeah, but that's a beach film. Um, if anyone checks it out, I'm curious to hear what they think of it. Mm-hmm. It seems like the reviews right now are pretty mixed. It seems like uh, even people who really got a kick out of Spring Breakers are kind of uh, indecisive or kind of uh, picking different sides in this film, which I find mm-hmm. a little more interesting than the conversation around Spring Breakers. So um yeah uh let's see we're going a little long but um let's see we could talk about five feet apart Mm -hmm. we could talk about shazam or i could talk about the inventor the hbo documentary what are you feeling Corey? interesting i i'll say just quick thoughts on the two things i've watched this weekend okay all five feet apart um i really enjoyed 
the performances in it. I think that Haley Richardson is like one of our new great actresses. For sure. Um, I thought Cole Sprouse did a really good job. Um, mm, that's for, interesting. I, I think he has a little bit of a, you know, he's like kind of a, not narrow focused actor, but like, I think he's kind of got a type that he kind of has to do when he's playing that character on Riverdale. Yeah. I imagine that that's a very influential role on him. It's going to get into typecast and stuff, but I thought he showed some nuance that I wasn't expecting from the kid from Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, but I, I don't know. I, I liked that movie's willingness to tell that story, although I think it does that story a disservice by making it so melancholic and um, tropey. Uh, I think it has moments that are nuanced and that really kind of dig in like the fault in the stars with the realities of the situation. They don't over-aggrandize the romance, but then they do in a very explicit way. And if it weren't for the performances, I think it would completely fall off the rails and become just very overindulgent. But I think it's a fine movie. Uh, it's not one I'd really recommend you see in theaters, but you know, I think if you've got kids and they like movies like this, and if you think if you want to learn more about cystic fibrosis, I think they do a good job of highlighting the just really tragic parts of that illness and, and it's representation. It's new ways of telling stories. And, you know, I feel like obviously that they don't get actors that have that disease, which I think would obviously make it much more impactful. Um, but they're, they're letting that story be known. And I, I think that there's good things about it, but you know, it's just another difficult conversation where it's like, who tells your story? Is it being told in a proper way? I don't know. I mean, I'd be curious to hear from people who are around this disease if the film does it justice. I don't exactly know, but you know, I think it's a fine movie. I wouldn't really watch it again, but I think it's okay. And then, um, I saw Medea's family funeral and <laughs> All right, yeah. Well, I'll say one thing. It's basically like if Tyler Perry wanted like to pull up producers and say, I want to make a Medea movie so bad that no one will ever want to watch a Medea movie ever again. And it turned out to be so bad that it's almost watchable. And if you ever get a chance to watch this movie and you just want to kill your time, do it. And know that Uncle Heathrow is like an end of days figure. Um, like when the four horsemen of the apocalypse come in, I imagine Uncle Heathrow will be one of them. Um, it's like oh. Perry's most recent creation. It is a, it is, it is so abysmal that it's like almost genius, but also bad. I, this movie, it, it's, it's a very bad movie, but at the same time, it's just like fascinating. So I don't, I don't want to dwell too long on Medea's family funeral, but. Medea's done. I think it's a much better character than a lot of the movies were, but man, this one was a quite a capper. Yeah, because I know you tend to have a softer spot for the Medea movies than I do, and I think a couple mm -hmm. other people do. I uh, think, yeah, there's some there's some decent ones in there, and I think the one that he did with Taraji begins is actually a good movie. I think it's thoroughly good. But you mean uh, I can do battle by myself? Oh yeah, I think that's yeah, a, I think that's his best film. Yeah, I think that's a that's a solid film. I would think that, and um, yeah, I mean as a film. Maker, I can't say I'm a Tyler Perry fan, but I do think that he has gotten pretty close. I mean, just by the nature of you know directing as, as long as he does, or yeah. as many films as he does, uh, he you know that was pretty good. Um, for Color Girls, definitely had its moments. Um, trying to think what else, uh, Daddy's Girls, I think was called the one with Idris Elba. I liked uh, Big Happy Family. Um, it's actually pretty decent. Medea's so Big Happy Family is that the. Yeah. 
it's got Loretta Devine in it, and she does a really good job. And okay. That, she's a very underrated actress, so I was really kind of happy to see her take that, a role in it. Um, yeah, I was trying to think. Uh, is that the one um, that I was thinking of with, with uh, Alfred Woodard? Is that um, like. Maybe. The, this is the one that had Bow Wow in it. It's, oh. It's more of a oh, yeah, no, I know which one you're thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty decent. I mean, it's got some pretty inspired set pieces in it but and then obviously the red divine is really good but um well she's always good right oh yeah she's great i mean she's just yeah. a very reliable character actress that um i think has not always gotten the roles she deserves but um very interesting guy i think he's a much better actor than he is a filmmaker when he does yeah. a serious role because he's great in vice he's great in gone girl like he's he can he's got talent i mean obviously but he doesn't usually have to use it since he's like a, a major media mogul now yeah no I, I agree with that i think yeah it was um the film i was thinking of was the family that prays yeah, 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 yeah. uh with kathy bates uh but um yeah no i agree with that i think there's just something about his films or he just he kind of makes them at a regular clip and the ones of late have been excessively lazy to me mm. in a way that just feels like he like the boo movies medea witness protection it just feels What's that? Medea's like Christmas or something. Oh, I forgot about that one with Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. I should mention that I've seen almost all the Medea movies except for Medea Family Funeral. Uh, I don't know why, but I've seen almost all of them. Uh, and I'll probably check out Medea's Family Funeral just because, you know, I made it this far. Why not? <laughs> And he uh, just said about yeah. his school last year, which I actually thought was okay. Uh, I wasn't crazy about that one, truth be told, but I was curious to see him take on a studio film and kind of expand beyond uh, his usual uh, brand, you know, Medea, and, uh, you know, kind of making a film outside of the typical Tyler Perry Studios uh, franchise, so or uh, brand, I guess, as well. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure what's going to happen f- for him after this but uh it'll be curious to see i suppose and i'm very curious to see if this is truly the end for medea or if she's going to come back in some variation or form in the future Who, who's to say yeah well tyler perry is to say <laughs> yeah i'm allergic to the idea of no more medea it makes yeah. me sneak i need more medea <laughs> um yeah let's just i i guess i'm gonna say we'll just real quick I want to hear your thoughts on Shazam, and then we'll wrap up this week's episode. Okay, um, I I really enjoyed it. I, you know, obviously it's it's not like the first time we've had like a superhero movie, but funny, like it, we've we've had those, so it kind of feels like it's just retreading some enjoyable ground there. But I think it's well done. I think David Sandberg is another guy that's coming from horror that knows how to work in the genre and knows the beats, knows the darkness, knows the light. And it's just kind of a fun millennial, you know, poppy, big riff, I guess. And I think Zachary Levi is fantastic in that role. I think it's a, it's a star making turn for him at a point in his career where I think he really needed a role like that to really establish himself among the pack. But um, it's really fun. I don't know if like, you know, it's, it's got some really heady material that I appreciated. Just some interesting, interesting commentary on the hero's journey and what makes a hero. And, you know, and we've seen it before, but I think it handles it well. So as a film, I think it will get some, it felt fresh enough with what it does, but I think it will get more originality points than it necessarily deserves because it's very similar to Spider-Man Homecoming to the point where they both use Ramon songs over, uh, like comic book, uh, sketchy. Yeah, for the end credits. Yeah, that's like a direct uh, homage, I guess. But mm. um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's a movie where I don't 
the one thing I will say about it is it hasn't like stuck with me like I thought it would. Like it felt, it feels a bit more vapid than you might expect when you watch it. Like I think it's just more of the experience and the fun of it and one appreciating Levi. And, but it's just a thoroughly good movie um, for what it's trying to do. And I don't, I don't really want to watch it again, but like if I did, I wouldn't be against it. You know, it's just, you know, it's not Aquaman. I'll, at least I'll say that because I really loved Aquaman, but Aquaman was uh, fun. It was fun, and this one's uh, it's it's really good um, for what it's trying to do, and I, I appreciate it. I appreciate DC giving these stories some breathing room finally, and some proper filmmaking. But you know, I'm I'm a little less big on it, no pun intended, than I was when I first saw it. Mm-hmm. But I think that's just the nature of it. Is it's it's more of the fun experience, and you just kind of leave it where it is when you go. <laughs> Yeah, I generally agree. Uh, I'll talk about it more next week. Um, overall, I did enjoy the film. I do think it has some glaring problems, like being way too long and uh, maybe a little uneven in terms of the story. But um, yeah, I think what works here really works. And I agree with you, Zachary Levi. He's just so charismatic and fun in the role that I think he's really going to win people over yeah. uh, post-Chuck. Um, mm. So yeah, I'm curious to uh, talk about that more next week, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts. Uh before we wrap this week's episode up. Um, so yeah, like we said, uh, oh, sorry, what? No, it's a fun movie. It's definitely, yeah. um, it's got, it's got a little spirit to it. I appreciate it. And it's irreverent enough. And, you know, I, I definitely uh, would recommend it. Yeah. I will say though, it does feel like the most like DC trying to make a Marvel movie. Yes. Approach. Like it just feels like just make one that I guess everyone wants, which is like a fun, lighthearted movie. And I guess the response so far has been, yes, this is what we wanted. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's fine. I mean, it seems like it's definitely going to be a crowd pleaser, which is cool. Uh, but I agree with you. Yeah. It feels a little more, uh, disposable than the other, uh, DC movies for better or for worse. Agree. But yeah, um, next week we'll talk about Shazam a little more. We'll also talk about Pet Cemetery. I'm pretty excited about that film. I've been reading the book, so I'm curious to talk about that film once I see that. And then we also have The Best of Enemies, which I'm seeing on Wednesday. Are you seeing any of these films, Corey? Besides Shazam, obviously. Yeah, I'll be seeing... I think I'm going to do Best of Enemies on Wednesday as okay. well. And then I'd like to see Pet Cemetery and Dolby some yeah. point next weekend. So, yeah. Yeah, I... Totally agree. Yeah, I think um, I don't think I have a screening for Pet Cemetery, unfortunately, coming up this week. But uh, that's fine. Yeah, I'll just have to give it my money. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Um, but also, we also have um, Shrill on uh, Hulu, which is uh, a show John and I have watched. Uh, we're going to talk about this that show this week. But uh, since he's not here, I'm holding that off. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I'm going to talk about The Inventor, Alfred Blood in Silicon Valley, the new Alex Gibney documentary uh, about Elizabeth Holmes. And then I've watched an hour so far of Drag to Get Across Concrete. I think, is it Drag to Cross Concrete? Is that the title of the film? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting film. <laughs> I was texting about it with Corey a little bit. I don't know what to make of it so far, and maybe I'll have a better idea next week if uh, I find the time to talk about it. So, with that, uh, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Cinemaholics. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Stitcher, and also hang out with us on Facebook and Twitter. I am primarily the social media person, so if you ever feel a need to reach out to us, I'm probably the one that's going to respond to you, so just keep that in mind, I suppose. And if you want to email us, you can talk to us at cinemaholicspodcasts at gmail.com. Corey, thank you again so much for joining us, especially at last minute. Um, I really appreciate you being here to talk about Dumbo and Beach Bum as long as we did. I think that was a lot of fun. I gotta say, I'm surprised we got this under two hours. 
Like, I almost yeah. like a short episode, considering the two types of movies we're talking about. <laughs> I know, yeah. I mean, you want to make it two hours? I mean, I mean we could. I mean, yeah, we've got yeah. uh, 15 minutes. I mean, yeah, let's, just, let's just draw this thing out as long as we want. Exactly. John's not here to tell us when we need to stop. Exactly. You can't tell me what to do. <laughs> we'll just keep it going. Exactly. This so how you doing? Marathon. I'm doing great. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go through all my favorite... Um, uh let's just get into 90s nostalgia pieces and all my favorite bizarre um intricacies of uh the latter and the non-looney tunes uh non-space jam looney tune entries of the uh of film and television from that period but oh man well i was gonna ask you what your top five uh tim burton films were oh good question um i would definitely say number one is always going to be peewee uh, i think that's his best movie i mean okay. it's just Really, really, really fun. Um, I would probably say ooh, that's tough. You always want to like feel like Nightmare Before Elm Street, or not, I mean, Nightmare Before Christmas is like one of his movies, but it's not. Um, I would say Batman Returns would be second. Um, okay, that's I would I like that, which is a good movie. It's really oh, actually, good. Yeah. It is, and I probably put Frank and Weenie third. Oh, okay, um, cool. And I might interchange those. I love the, I love both those movies. I think Frank and Winnie is like one of the great stop motion movies we've ever gotten. So I think it's brilliant. yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, I would probably put Mars Attacks fourth. Wow. Okay. I support I it. Yeah. It's, hell yeah. I mean, it's just such a fun movie, and I'd probably go. Um, I'd probably say Sweeney Todd fifth. Okay. Cool. Um, I was gonna say for me, Edward is the best in my opinion or my favorite uh-huh. um close second is edward scissorhands mm-hmm. third is big fish i love big fish um four um huh. let's see I, I i might go with freaking weenie for that one but i don't know i really do like frank and weenie and i'm trying to think if there's any ones that we didn't talk about that i'm blanking on right now i think there's beetlejuice Mm-hmm. You know what? I'm gonna go with Beetlejuice for number four. Fun movie. And then um, five is either Pee Wee or um, Pee Wee or uh, I'm blanking on another one. I think. Oh well. And actually, no. I'll go five Frank and Weenie. So yeah, that's my top five. It's always interesting, like his. Biggest... Oh wait, no. Wait, I'm sorry. Five was um, I was gonna do Batman Returns. My bad. Mm-hmm. It's always interesting that like the first Batman is really his most influential film in terms of like modern theater. And it's like I still think that's more of a performance movie than like it's a, it's a really good movie, but it's just like I think it's more centered on what Nicholson's doing than anything else, and then Keaton. Uh, wait, Nicholson? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, Jack Nicholson, I guess for the first Batman. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, for Batman. Sorry, I was like, sorry, my mind went to Beetlejuice for some reason. Yeah, Jack Nicholson's cameo, and yeah. not a lot of people know about. There's like foot shows up. Well, I was just gonna say because I feel like sometimes like the Beetlejuice can be a performance piece mainly for Michael Keaton. Oh, yeah. But the movie is just so good anyway that oh. I mean, yeah, and I mean you can. I don't know if you can ever top that movie, and I I I am very afraid to see that sequel that they keep teasing from. Yeah, uh, I think no pun intended, but kind of want that light in cast. Yeah, <laughs> I mean just having the guy from um, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, and yeah. just and zombies like writing it. I don't know. It just doesn't sound right to me. No, I'll feel it. Yeah. Uh we're almost we well we have ten minutes. We want to keep this thing two hours. We could. I mean, yeah, we might yeah. as well. Life's short. Yeah. Um. Man. So you know, as we're getting into April, I mean, what movies are you looking forward to this month? Uh well, Pet Cemetery. Yeah. 
Um, what's coming out? Well, we got Missing Link. I'm seeing that on Oh, the yeah, stack. yeah. Me too, yeah. yeah, yeah. I am very looking forward to that. It looks a little sillier than some of their other movies, but like I think it still looks like it's going to be a tough one, which is good because we haven't gotten a like a film in like three years almost. So yeah, yeah. Um, High Life. I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, that will be interesting. Um, if people, Claire Denis is a really big uh, stan culture person, and she's got a lot of fans in the film community. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll be fun. Um, I'm a, I'm. Curious about Hellboy. I don't know if excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that. It'll be fun, and I love David Harbour and Ian McShane. So, and then also uh, Sasha Lane's in it. I mean, Daniel Day Kim, Thomas Hayden Church. Like, it's got uh, Mia Jovovich. Uh, so it's got a lot of good people in it, mm-hmm. but it just the trailers aren't very good. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm I'm curiously optimistic. I guess. Yeah, oh, yeah. and I've seen Under the Silver Lake that comes out. Oh yeah, I was gonna bring that up. Yeah, so you've seen that one already. I have. It's a it's a trip. It's a good trip or a, bad trip. The good question. I think it's going to vary for a lot of people because it's okay. basically okay. like um, we actually when we saw last movie we saw together was um, the Long Goodbye right. uh, by Robert Altman. And this is like the millennial version of that almost mixed together with some a- aspects of like Chinatown and Hair Advice and that was like you know uh, who's the guy that wrote Hair Advice? Um, Thomas Pynchon. Pynchon, yeah. Yeah, it's like mixed in with a lot of that and then a little bit of occult stuff. So it's it's really an interesting film. It's got a lot of really good flair to it. Andrew Garfield's good. It's got a good story. It's very all over the place. And it's a movie that people are going to – it's going to develop a very exact subculture of people that watch it like 12 times and will go back and forth on it to see what's about. And some people will just be like, no, <laughs> and never watch it again. So – it's going to have a, it'll be a cult film. And I think that's fascinating for what the guy that's doing that after it follows. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fan. I really liked it a lot. I'd like to see it on the big screen just to like be able to soak it all in. I yeah. Assuming it ever gets a theatrical release in the United States. Yeah. That's the thing. It, I don't think it is. I think they're probably just trying to dump it on VOD. Cause I'm surprised just, they haven't already. Honestly. It, it's, <laughs> it's I, well, they have in Europe. Yeah. So I mean, it's like out, you can, I mean, if, I mean, there's uh, less legal ways you can watch it, but you can watch it. It's like, and who shot it? I'm curious if the guy that shot that is the one that. Yeah, it's um Mike uh, Giohulakis who did us and did um uh, it follows. Is the guy that was the cinematographer here, mm-hmm. and he does phenomenal work. And he also shot Split and Glass and us, right? Uh, yeah, he's yeah he's the us guy. Mm-hmm. So um. Yeah, great, I'm loving his stuff. Yeah, I think his cinematography is great. It is. He's a very much a rising person. Um, yeah, I was gonna say he, also. Um, who's a who's a guy who shot a uh, beach bum? Um, oh, uh, Benoit Deby. Yeah, because he did climax, and I thought mm-hmm. that's some of my best uh, or some of my favorite cinematography of the year. So he's uh, yeah, Marcus and Deby are like up in commerce. Yeah, like, they're like the new uh, Deacons and um, Lubeski. Exactly. I'm I'm here. I'm Gilakis especially. Yeah. And to be like, I, he did Spring Breakers. So it's like, I mean, it was one of my favorite cinematography films of the decade, if that's even a word. But yeah, it's so, 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 so good. Oh, speaking of Deacons, um, we'll wrap this up pretty soon, guys. Um, <laughs> I, was, I just rewatched uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou this weekend. Right on. I saw that. I did that back in December on 35. Oh, really? Oh, oh, oh yeah. I'm jealous. Oh, man. It was a blast. They did it at the Bell Court. And oh, it was man. just oh, like, man. it was joy. 
It's one of my favorite movies. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it was my introduction to the Coen Brothers when I was a kid. So, right on. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I got to see they did a like a um, soundtrack playthrough at um, a concert venue close to by where they had like local and touring bluegrass yeah. groups play the album. Oh sweet! Uh, so I was I saw that on Saturday and that was really fun. Inspired me to nice. really watch the movie and yeah, it, it's it's a great little movie. I, oh, I I think people I don't know for some reason I guess it gets called like the like like a second rate or like a second tier Coen Brother film. I think it's because it's popular. Really? Because I feel well, like um, it might just be because it's like a little less like focused than some of his other film their other I films, think, but well, it's like it's pretty strict to like its story I mean, right it's like but a, like it's just like a, a lot of like uh like um like character interactions and stuff kind of similar to beach <laughs> film in some ways yeah it is it's, it's kind of like that non like you know it's 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 anecdotal yeah um somebody I, I, what reminded me is that um some critic compared uh the beach film to harmony crin's home or uh the odyssey and that's what made me think of that interesting so, that's a good way to put that yeah um so anyway yeah <laughs> I think I think we fulfilled our our time limit. I think we have, and yeah. I'll close it by saying I'm seeing a 35 of Singing in the Rain tomorrow night. Oh, really? Right? Awesome. Oh, yeah. And Stanley Donnan, who just passed away, uh, yeah, retrospective yeah. for him at the Bell Court in Nashville. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I guess anyone uh, who listens to this podcast is probably a big fan of film projections. But yeah, anybody, if you ever get a chance, you know, these days to see classic films projected on film, take up that opportunity if you can. I mean, it's just, it's gorgeous often to see these films that are already great in 35 millimeter. It's, it's, I I cannot uh, fully describe the joy that can come from those experiences. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, definitely. Anybody, if you get a chance uh, in your nearby theaters, if you get a chance to see something in thirty-five millimeter, seek it out. So, I think it's a good nose I need to end this uh, overlong episode. We did double, man. We had to have a big ears edition. Yes, exactly. So, all right, this is the official actual end of the podcast uh, from the internet, Pennsylvania. I'm Wash. From the internet in Nashville, I'm Corey Woodruff. All right, everybody. Until next time. See ya.